A series of explosions and resulting fires are tearing through an oil storage facility about 50 miles from Havana, Cuba, killing at least one, injuring dozens, and leaving many missing. What would be a tragic natural disaster for any country is a complete nightmare for Cuba due to the U.S. war on Cuba that's designed to destroy the island and the People's Socialist Project. And this war includes many of Trump's policies that Biden hasn't even looked at. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm Nicole Roussel, a producer of the show. If you enjoy or rely on this show or both, please show your support by subscribing to our show at patreon.com slash the socialist program. Today, we'll be speaking to Gloria Lariva. She's the coordinator of the Cuba and Venezuela Solidarity Committee and one of the co-founders of the Hatue Project, a new medical aid project to counteract the deadly effects of the U.S. blockade of Cuba by procuring vital medicine and equipment that the island country is unable to purchase, which we'll talk more about today. Gloria, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Nicole, for the invitation. So, you know, we're talking about this horrendous, horrendous natural disaster that happened in Cuba over the weekend. You know, these fires are just tearing through this oil storage facility. The Cuban government has evacuated people in the area, but, you know, there's a series of explosions. I mean, this is a a really big deal. What happened? Yes. Well, in Matanzas, which is where oil production takes place, both on the land and at sea on the shore. Matanzas is a province to the east of Havana, and they have what they call a super tanker base. It has several huge oil tanks, each with a capacity of 50,000 Cuban meters of oil. And at the time of the explosion, Friday night, the first one had exploded because a lightning ray struck And because it was so close and the fire was so enormous, if you can imagine, I think the first one had about 30,000 cubic meters of oil. It has since spread to a third tank and there may be more. So the environmental disaster is huge, massive black cloud that is even reaching Havana and covering parts of the city. Right now they have evacuated hundreds of families from the area. But as you said, there were 17 firefighters who were disappeared and presumed dead. They found one body yesterday, the first hero, the first martyr of this fire. But it is an economic disaster. This oil, we are told, was destined for the gasoline stations of Havana and Matanzas, Havana being a city of 2 million And already, I just came from there a few days ago with a delegation, and already people are lined up for blocks and blocks trying to get diesel fuel or gasoline. It's really hardship. The other is that fuel powers the electrical generating plants. And today they just announced that the biggest electrical generating plant, the thermoelectric plant called Antonio Guiteras, which has a 1,200 kilowatt capacity, they had to put that down. They had to shut it down temporarily because there's not enough water to cool the plant. 
Why? Because the water is being diverted to try to put out this fire. So it has huge economic implications for the people of Cuba. As you said, you were just in Cuba and you just got back a few days ago and you sent me and I'm going to play a couple of clips from an interview you did from being around in Havana and being in other places in Cuba. Before I go to those, can you tell us who we're going to hear from and what the importance is of their speaking and their talk? Sure. Well, we were about 150 people from the United States and about 70 people from Puerto Rico who were visiting Cuba during the July 26th celebration. It's a holiday in Cuba. The man who addressed us all is Carlos Fernandez de Cosío. He is a very highly regarded and longtime diplomat for Cuba. Right now, he is the vice minister of foreign affairs. So he came to speak to us. He speaks in English and explained some of the aspects of the blockade, which most people of the United States have not a clue about. So I'm going to play one clip. I mean, this is really, really vital and important. And the fact, Gloria, that you were able to get this kind of information that often doesn't come off the island. We don't often hear, like you said, especially not directly from a Cuban diplomat about what's going on and and how these sort of policies impact. So we're really honored and excited to be able to play this. So I've got three clips from De Coseo, and I'm going to play the first one here. He talks about the meaning of being on the state-sponsored terrorism list because, you know, these explosions were this terrible disaster. These were a huge tragedy caused by, like you said, a lightning storm. This wasn't something that was in Cuba's control, unlike, you know, how much they've improved on medicine and medical capabilities, unlike, you know, how many COVID vaccines they produce, something like that that they have control over to some extent. They had no control over this. This was a natural disaster. And people everywhere, countries everywhere experience these awful, awful natural disasters. But this is more than just a natural disaster for Cuba because Cuba is on the U.S. state terrorism list, and this has a profound impact. Yes. This means that no bank anywhere in the world will carry out any transaction with Cuba. Any country who wants to do business with Cuba essentially can't. So I'm going to play a clip where he talks about this. And then, Gloria, I want to get your your reaction. It is an illegitimate list. No official from the State Department or the U.S. government and no politician with which we talk can tell me with a straight face that they believe that Cuba is a country sponsor of terrorism. And yet they say, but it's difficult, you know, politically it's difficult to remove us from the list. In other other words, it is difficult to do the right thing. It is difficult to correct a dishonest action. It is difficult to tell the truth. That is what they're telling us when they speak. So Gloria, I mean, he's talking about essentially the ridiculousness of Cuba being on this list. But what is this list and what effect does it have on the country? Well, the state terrorism sponsor list is, as De Cosillo says, a really false list. Other countries are on it as well. And what it enables the U.S. to do, as you explained, is it allows the U.S. to even enhance more the sanctions, the blockade, it forces countries to say, since you're declared a sponsor of terrorism, we'll not do business with you. And I would say, and this everyone knows this to be true in Cuba, is that not only is Cuba not a sponsor of terrorism, it in fact is a victim for 60 years of U.S. sponsored terrorism. And the last act was December 31st, January 1st, 2020, 
when a man armed with an assault rifle fired multiple bullets into the Cuban embassy on 16th Street in Washington. And to this day, he hasn't been prosecuted yet. And the U.S. police, the Washington police, the U.S. FBI will not let Cuba know what is taking place if there's any investigation into that suspect, who is a Cuban-American, who is known for having links to terrorists in Miami. So Cuba documents that they have 3,478 Cubans who have died by U.S. terrorism, whether it's bombings, the bombing of the Cuban airliner in 1976 that killed 73 people, bombings of their embassies abroad, and biological warfare. So it is truly outrageous. Cuba had been declared a sponsor of terrorism before, but it hadn't existed for a while. And that was basically the last act that President Trump engaged in in late July before he left office. And now Biden says, well, you know, it takes a study. It's going to take a while. We can't just lift it. Oh, yes, you can. He just chooses not to. And in addition to the terrorism designation, this false designation, the Trump administration signed 243 economic and political measures that tightened this strangling blockade, 243 measures, 55 during the pandemic. So Cuba is suffering this incredible array of laws and measures designed to bring it down. Why? Because it's a socialist country that provides free health care, free education. That's not a good example for the people of the U.S. They might get ideas. Gloria, I really like the way you put that, but I even want to go back to your very first comment because, I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, like, let's think about that. If the British embassy in the United States here in Washington, D.C. had bullets shot into it, or if the U.S. embassy anywhere in the world, anywhere in the world, in Britain, in you know, somewhere in Latin America, in Central America, anywhere in the world, if any U.S. embassy had any bullets shot into the embassy where there are diplomats and officials and U.S. citizens working there, I mean, that would be the headline news for weeks. That would be, you would get updates on every single hearing. There would be prosecution immediately. And if there wasn't, the U.S. would launch more sanctions, would launch, you know, investigations, would send diplomats over, would have all kinds of actions. But that's not what happened. And I think that's such a good example of what you're talking about, about how, you know, the U.S. does treat Cuba differently, and it's very clear why. Yes, in fact, it's good to remind ourselves that for 16 years, Cuban individuals, they were patriots who had infiltrated these Miami-based terrorist organizations in the early 1990s, because after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the U.S., encouraged and sponsored terrorist activity to try to discourage the tourism that was growing in Cuba as an economic alternative to the trade that they enjoyed before with the Soviet Union. So bombings were taking place in Cuban hotels in 1997 by a man, a notorious terrorist named Posada Carriles, who was on the CIA payroll for many years that the U.S. admits. And so to try to stop these increased acts of terrorism in the 90s, five Cuban men infiltrated those terrorist groups. And when Cuba gave to the FBI, they invited the FBI to Cuba and said, we're going to give you all these documents. 
proof of these terrorists that are based in Miami, please act against them. What the U.S. FBI did instead was arrest the men who had collected that information. And in this outrageous trial that took place in the one city they couldn't be fairly tried in, they were convicted. They served between 13 and 16 years until there was finally an exchange and they were freed. Those five men, the Cuban five as they're known, now play important roles inside Cuban society. But outside of Miami, most Americans didn't know about the Cuban five or about the history of U.S.-sponsored terrorism, or even about the blockade. If people of the U.S. knew the extent and the reason for the blockade to deny food, to deny medicine, health care, everything that people need to survive, I believe that the people of the U.S. would absolutely demand and make an end. I couldn't agree more with you, Gloria. And let's talk a little bit more about the blockade in particular, and especially the economic functions that the U.S. blockade on Cuba really prevents. And I want to talk about it. I want to go back to this fire, too, because this massive industrial fire, you know, has already left at least one person dead, at least 16 people missing, at least, you know, over 120 people are injured. And because the fire was so big and because it was obviously blazing so hot, around 5,000 people have already been evicted from their homes near the accident site. I mean, this is a huge, huge disaster. And the thing that I think is really important to talk about in this moment is, again, how different it is for Cuba to be experiencing this kind of natural disaster because every disaster that Cuba experiences is so compounded because they are treated in this way, because of the blockade because of being on this so-called illegitimate, as DeCoscio said, list of state, you know, quote unquote, state-sponsored terror, which is obviously there's no evidence. It's not, there's no proof of any of that. And even, as you said, it's really the opposite, right? That the U.S. is terrorizing Cuba. So I want to play another clip from DeCoscio. He goes over essentially like, what are some of the economic laws, literal laws and policies in place about the blockade? As a matter of law in the United States, it is prohibited to export to Cuba any product built in the United States. But also it is prohibited to export to Cuba any product manufactured anywhere in the world if it has 10% or more of U.S. component. To give you an idea, Cuba cannot buy commercial aircraft anywhere in the world regardless of who produces it, because there's no aircraft in today's world built that does not have at least 10% of U.S. component. That, that goes into the area of medicine, of medical equipment, of transportation, of energy plants, of our big electrical plants. That means that for us to maintain, to repair, to refurbish, any of our major electrical plants, we need to go around U.S. legislation. If we are successful, it has a huge, a huge cost for our country. But in addition to that, no country can export any product to the United States if it has 10% or more of Cuban component. Steel exported from any country in the world cannot reach the United States if it has 10% of Cuban nickel. We are a country that exports nickel. 
I mean, he really lays out what this looks like and what effect this has. And in simple terms that I think are really helpful that essentially, you know, in this very like global economy that we have, there aren't products that don't have 10% that are either raw materials or in another part in his speech, he also talks about how intellectual property is also considered if 10% or I don't know how you take percentages of intellectual property, but I'm sure the U.S. manages to do that. If there's somehow 10% of the intellectual property that's owned by the United States, then that also cannot be sold to Cuba. I'm going to play one more clip where he goes into also, these are really tough laws to live under in the first place, but thinking also about the conditions of Cuba. I mean, Cuba is an island. Like, there are already limitations. So I'm going to play one more clip, and then, Gloria, I want to get your thoughts. So you can imagine the limitations that Cuba has to conduct foreign trade. And we're a relatively small country with relatively small arable land, with no energy resources, poor mineral resources. So we depend on our international economic relations to to sustain our economy, to develop, to ensure the well-being of our people. And yet we have to confront all these limitations. The U.S., by law, has to go around the world chasing Cuban financial transactions, trying to make sure that we do not get credit. And if we do receive credit, it is with very high uh, interest rate, very costly to our country. As a matter of policy, since 2019, the U.S. has been trying to deprive Cuba from receiving fuel from any country. So it punishes, it sanctions, or threatens with sanctions shipping companies, ports, refineries, oil exporters that will ship oil to Cuba. And we need oil for our daily life, for this microphone to function, it needs electricity. And we need fuel for that, for air conditioning, for refrigerating our food, for hospitals, for schools, for industry. We need electricity. For movement, we need fuel. And yet the U.S. government decided in 2019 to deprive Cuba with the availability of fuel. This is truly criminal behavior on the part of the United States, withholding and requiring other countries to withhold these very, very basic goods. I think it's a very important fact also for people to understand of the role of every presidential administration since the beginning of the Cuban Revolution from Eisenhower on down. And that is that until the administration of President Bill Clinton, the prerogative of the president to lift the U.S. entire blockade was in the hands of the president. He had the power. But what Bill Clinton did with the signing in March 1996 of what's called, popularly known as the Helms-Burton Law, named after Richard Helms and Dan Burton, two senators. And that is a very extensive law. But with that law that Bill Clinton signed, He handed over the power to lift the blockade and the enforcement to U.S. Congress. So we know that it's almost impossible to get anything progressive passed, I mean, really, by Congress with their continual fights and not taking people's interests at heart. So to expect that the U.S. Congress, which often plays the foreign policy issues, 
against other countries, especially Cuba. Nobody wants to be seen or accused of supporting Cuba's right to live. Well, it's pretty much stuck in Congress. And um, I think the issue of fuel, this whole loss of tens of thousands of cubic meters of oil at this point, plus the ability to store the oil in the future, because it's not just a fire. These tanks are ruined. It's major infrastructure. And already after 60 years of blockade, Nicole, 60 years of a country not being able to update the parts because they're U.S. owned or controlled, not being able to replace or modernize the electrical plants means that they're, almost all of them are deteriorating. There are some 28 electrical plants in Cuba and less than a handful are really able to sustain for a few years. The others are in desperate need of repair. And when there's no fuel, not only is there no electricity, when we were there, there were constant blackouts and there are scheduled blackouts throughout Cuba now to try to save fuel at least twice a week for a minimum of four hours each. And when you're there at night and it's so extremely hot and you can't even have a fan or a light, it also means that you cannot operate water in buildings, residential buildings that depend on water pumps to pump the water up a floor. And so people are lacking water as well. And this is all deliberate by the United States government. I had someone ask a question, well, how is it that the U.S. can stop Venezuelan oil from coming to Cuba? Because in 2019, Trump blocked the shipment, the regular shipment of Venezuelan oil that was going to Cuba that was helping them greatly in exchange for Cuban doctors, some 23,000 who provide free health care in Venezuela. And the answer is that the U.S. Treasury Department, Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, has a list. They have this enormous list of companies that they sanction. And there are 34 ships that Venezuela's petroleum company, Belevesa, depends on to ship their oil. And so they are sanctioned and blocked financially from delivering oil to Cuba, as well as two foreign companies, one based in Liberia, one based in Greece. And then in another example, the Japanese firm, which is called, it's J-O-C-M-E-C, which is the National Japanese Corporation of Petroleum, Gas, and Metal. They announced to the Cuban embassy in Japan that their three enterprises would cancel their participation in a joint venture with Cuba's petroleum industry on possible exploration, geochemical explorations in the deep waters off of Cuba. And they said it's because of the threat of sanctions by the United States. So we're talking literally thousands of actions against Cuba designed to starve people, designed to make people suffer. And I mean, frankly, to kill people too, because what you just addressed, I mean, if you aren't able to be able to fully access and pump water in the way that you need to, how are you going to put out a fire in the first place? I think it's almost impossible to actually fully calculate all of the different parts of the web that this blockade, you know, this criminal blockade, all the effects of all of these little pieces. 
if you think about it, it's like if there's a fire in your own house and the old fire extinguisher that you have, and maybe you have an old one because there weren't any available when you went to the store, and this old one that you have has become rusted shut, maybe the door gets stuck because, you know, sometimes, you know, you normally have to kind of use a tool to open it because you can't afford to fix it or the store doesn't have that one part that you need to really fix the door jam and make it make sure it actually latches. I mean, these are all barriers that could have been avoided with access to proper supplies, like access to the basics. What does this cost? I mean, like, as you said, the blockade has been going on for more than 60 years. I mean, what is the cost of this blockade? What does this mean especially in this moment. What does this mean that Cuba is missing in this crisis, in this disaster? And when these hurricanes hit and when these, you know, this is happening, you know, what is the cost of a blockade for this whole country? Well, I think it's important to go back to a very important memorandum of 1960 that has only been declassified since 1991 on the reason why the U.S. maintains a blockade. And this 62-year-old memorandum is very much in place and it's diabolical. And it was written by a man named Lester Mallory. It's been quoted quite a lot lately. Lester Mallory was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State. And the April 6, 1960 memo on Cuba, he was advising a blockade. He said, most Cubans support Castro. There is no effective political opposition. The only possible way to make the government lose domestic support is by provoking disappointment and discouragement through economic dissatisfaction and hardships. Every possible means should be immediately used to weaken the economic life, denying Cuba funds and supplies to reduce nominal and real salaries with the objective of provoking hunger desperation, and the overthrow of the government. Wow. It's a really shocking document. It's U.S. policy. And, you know, you were talking earlier about some of the truly, I mean, I don't know what else you call having the CIA have somebody on payroll to go in and bomb literal places in another country. I don't know what you call that, but terrorism. And yet Cuba is the one on the state-sponsored terrorism list. And DeCosio talked a little bit more about what they have essentially figured out is why they think they're on the state-sponsored terrorism list. And I just want to play this for a second in this context because it's so stark when you compare the U.S. behavior of sending people to, you know, bomb people in other countries versus what DeCosio says. So I'm going to play this and get your thoughts. But for decades, Cuba has been involved and working with the government, different, different governments of Colombia in trying to help in their quest to seek peace and to seek a negotiation solution to the problems of Colombia. And for that, we have made sacrifices. And for that, we have run risks. And yet the U.S. government, with the help of the president of Colombia that is finishing in a few days, in a week's time, used this excuse to put us in that list. It is an illegitimate list. I mean, they have helped with a peace process and that's why they ended up on a list? Yes. And if you realize now, even today, there is a new president, Gustavo Petro, who has been inaugurated today. It's a very, very big development for Colombia. But Colombia is known as a narco state. 
and what the U.S. considers the best ally in Latin America, bordering Venezuela, which has been a base of subversive operations against Venezuela. This is who the U.S. supports, a well-known narco-trafficking government of Colombia, and now with this new president, Gustavo Petro, against the wishes of the U.S., we're hoping that there will be a breathing space for Latin America and that the end of this violence of the killing of social activists, environmentalists, labor leaders in Colombia can stop and that there be peace. But because Cuba was highly regarded, you know, the government of Norway, the United Nations, they all supported, including the Pope of the Vatican, they all were very praising of Cuba for sponsoring the peace negotiations that took place over several years in Havana to try to bring the peace from this war that started in 1948. And for that, Cuba is put on a state terrorism list. It's almost unbelievable, except we know very well the lengths the U.S. is willing to go to, to, as you said earlier, show what happens to a good example. And, you know, Cuba provides, as you mentioned too, medicine, provides medical care, provides doctors and training for doctors for countries all over the world, including the U.S. Things are planned in Cuba. If there's a hurricane, you know, you're multiple times more likely to survive a hurricane in Cuba, again, with all of these limitations we've talked about, than in the Gulf in the United States. There are so many ways that it's very clear that Cuba is a good example. And so the U.S., like you said, has to go through all of these, you know, horrendous policies to make sure that, to even try, as you said, to try to get rid of a good example. And you mentioned the Helms-Burton Act and how that has essentially made it impossible for any single U.S. president to get rid of the blockade, despite the fact that, you know, this is a horrendous, criminal, disgusting blockade that kills people. But earlier than that, you mentioned the policies that Trump added. He re-added Cuba to the state-sponsored terrorism list, You know, it was Trump who essentially really ripped up Obama's policy on this because Obama had started to normalize relations with Cuba to the extent that he could and to the extent that, you know, he did. But when Trump came in, he pretty much emptied the Cuban embassy and introduced 243 measures, if I have the number right, to tighten the noose on Cuba. And Biden is now president. And Biden, of course, was Obama's vice president during the time that Obama did these things, that he actually started to normalize relations with Cuba. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but Biden could undo those 243 measures, and I believe that at least most of those measures are still in place, right? Not only are they in place, they have been enhanced by Biden. But I would like to mention a couple of them. Just before the pandemic, the Trump administration blocked all remittances. You know, remittance is a very common and necessary practice by people from their home country When they come to the United States or go to another country for better economic situation, for example, millions of Mexicans send money home. And those remittances are one of the biggest pillars of the Mexican economy for people at home to get some help from their families working in the U.S., working and living. And in Cuba, before the remittances were stopped, just at the onset of the pandemic, Cuban Americans were sending 1.5 billion dollars a year to their families. Not only did Cuba have to shut down the whole tourism industry, their number one source of foreign income, in order to protect everyone, the lockdown that we also experienced in the early months of the pandemic, but 
with tourism stopping, there was no more income coming into the country. And what could have been a great relief for Cuban Americans to send money home was now banned. So no money came into Cuba for the first, you know, close to two years now of the pandemic. This has also added to the hardship and added to an enormous increase in inflation. Even though on January 1st, 2020, before the pandemic was declared worldwide, Cuba had greatly increased the wages of all state and administrative workers, you know, the media, doctors, nurses, teachers, anyone involved in state employment was given a very significant raise, like, you know, five, six times what they were normally getting. But that all was just kind of blown out of the water by the inflation because of all these economic factors. Much production shut down because of the lack of income from tourism. Imports are greatly reduced. So there is there are shortages of food. And this is why last July 11, with everything adding up, increased cases of COVID, even though Cuba has produced their vaccines, you know, a miraculous development, but not a miracle, it's their scientific biotechnology. But even though Cuba was developing the vaccine, they were suffering a huge number of COVID cases, up to 9,000 daily cases in August last year. And so this is exactly why the U.S. helped foment those disturbances that took place on that day of July 11, because they hoped all these added factors of hardship, of no money coming in, the economic shutdown, the remittances blocked, the Trump measures, that the Cuban people would be ready to explode. And they thought with this destabilization, we could lead to what could be ending as a coup. Now, the U.S. did not succeed, but I'm worried this month, this summer, that because things are so hard, I think they're harder than last year, and I was there both times, that I'm sure the U.S. is cooking something up. I think, you know, as we start to wrap up, Gloria, I want to ask, I mean, what do you think about, I mean, how can people who are hearing your words and reading about this fire, reading about the really horrendous conditions, you know, how can they get involved? How can they help? I know you're a co-founder of the Hatue Project, which is doing really vital procurement of medicine and supplies for Cuba. And in reaction to the fire, you know, people are raising funds to help. You know, it's really incredible, the outpouring of support, and it shows how much the American people care about this and and don't buy into the U.S. propaganda. And before we turn to that, actually, you know, in terms of what Cuba really, really needs in the long run, what they really need is to be able to get trade with other countries to keep its economy running, to be able to get the things, you know, these vital supplies that they need. The aid that's so vital that you all are working on and that I want you to talk about in just a moment. I mean, it's really a drop in the bucket of what they need. And the long and short of it is they desperately need to be able to trade with other countries. Am I right about that? Yes. And... The prospects for the blockade lifting, then their ability to live and trade normally with other countries, especially with the United States, which is so close, it would be much cheaper to trade with the U.S. That's long in the future. And so what they need right now is the political support, the material solidarity. It was very heartening to see just in two days that Mexico, Venezuela sent firefighters, big tankers that can spray foam on the fires. And that kind of support is very strategic, the state support. 
But in the U.S., there are many organizations helping raise money to send donations. I'm involved in one of them that's called the Atuey Project. It's called H-A-T-U-E-Y, named after Cuba's first resistor against Spanish colonialism. He was a native man, indigenous man, who took 400 men in the 1500s from what is now Dominican Republic and Haiti to fight the Spaniards in Cuba. He was burned at the stake. And so we've taken that name, Atuey, which means help advocates in truth, unity, and empathy. And we're making an appeal starting today to ask people to make a donation so that we can buy in bulk the kind of supplies that are needed to save the burn victims. They need a very special saline solution because they're losing fluids by their skin being so affected. They need burn ointments, gauzes. They need the ability to have oxygen, all kinds of things, you know, sterile gloves, everything that Cuba needs. So we're engaging in that right now. And already we're getting a lot of donations from people, but a lot of people really love and support Cuba. They've been there. They admire what they've done for the world. Like, as you said, the doctors that have been sent to everywhere to help save lives. And I want to say, I don't think we want to present Cuba as being unable to take care of its people. They are remarkable. And just in May, Cuba announced that people don't have to wear a mask anymore, except in special circumstances, because with 93% of the population fully vaccinated, with no debate in the population, people walk around now freely and safe. I was there. It was amazing to see. You don't have to be afraid that the person next to you might not be vaccinated. And that was because they produced their own vaccine. There are five that they developed, three that are being used, and they're highly effective. You know that if they had not developed their own vaccine, the only third world country to do so in the world, that they would not be able to get vaccines from the U.S. or from the countries that the U.S. pressures not to help. It's a remarkable achievement. As President Miguel Díaz-Canel said at the end of the full vaccination, he said, the scientists and doctors saved the Cuban nation. Gloria, I'm, I'm glad you detailed that because that's such a great example of exactly what you just said, that Cuba is, you know, the threat of a good example. And it's almost impossible to imagine what the people of Cuba could do if they weren't under this, you know, heavy and intense blockade, if they had access to basic things like syringes and medical equipment and, you know, pain relief medication and fuel, right? Like they were able to produce not only so many vaccines, but they have such a clear and effective and transparent and participatory system that people actually wanted to get them or felt comfortable, you know, getting these vaccines. Whereas in the United States, even before COVID, there was a large group of people, a growing group of people who felt like any vaccine, even vaccines that we've gotten for decades, like the you know polio vaccine, measles and mumps, the lack of trust has increased so dramatically in this country that people were, in this country, some were starting to, to not get those basic vaccines. And it's just such a testament to the Cuban system and to the project that they're a part of right now. And you know, I just want to say again that that is such a clear reason that what Cuba truly, absolutely needs in the long run is to get rid of this blockade, to get rid of these 243 measures, to get rid of and to eliminate this complete oppression and terrorism from the United States. But in the meantime, if listeners are able to give to the Hot Toy Project, 
how can they find the Atwe project and how can they donate more specifically? Is there a page on the website and is there a way, you know, if people want to get involved and do more than, than donate, if they want to donate and hold a rally or they want to donate and write a letter or they want to donate and maybe take a trip to Cuba to see this for themselves, is there a way to, to get involved on the website as well? Sure. Well, it's called the atwayproject.org. So it's, again, H-A-T as in Tom, U-E-Y project.org. And all donations are tax deductible. All the money is going toward medicine. There are many organizations involved in this. We're all working together. We have to join hands because there's such enormous potential for donations and medicine from the well, I'd say richest country in the world where we don't even have healthcare plan, but there is so much money, medicine, and medical equipment that could be donated to Cuba. And that's our aim. Gloria, thank you so much for joining us. It was truly an honor to have you on the Socialist Program. Thank you so much, Nicole. Take care. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.